I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man and women of course but that was back in the 60s with all the focus on impeachment other big important stories are getting lost you may have caught a brief snippet in passing about bolivia in recent days it really is a big deal not just for the people of bolivia but quite possibly as an ominous forerunner of other coup d'etats carried out by the global powers aimed at extracting from the earth no matter the price paid by the people who happen to live in the region. Our guest today is Nicole Fabricant, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Towson University. She's written two books on Bolivia, one entitled Mobilizing Bolivia's Displaced, Indigenous Politics and the Struggle Over Land, the other co-authored with Brett Gustafson, Remapping Bolivia, Resources, Rights, and Territory in a Plurinational State. Interesting word. I hadn't heard that before. Plurinational. I guess that means other countries have an interest there. Nicole, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. On November 10th, 2019, President Evo Morales, Bolivia's first indigenous president, was forced from office. Until that date, he was the longest standing leader in Latin America. Morales is a former coca leaf farmer and union leader and for a very long time enjoyed overwhelming popularity among Bolivians and the admiration of people around the world. He's credited with bringing steady growth to Latin America's poorest country. Senate Vice President and Opposition Leader Janine Anez then unconstitutionally declared herself interim president without confirmation by Congress, a body which is still controlled by Morales' Movement Towards Socialism Party, MAS. Morales supporters claim he was the victim of a false U.S.-led campaign aimed at smearing him. Boy, this sounds like a broken record from throughout the 20th century. Now, according to an editorial from North American Congress in Latin America, NACLA, N-A-C-L-A, there is, quote, an unprecedented atmosphere of fear, terror, and chaos that clearly plays into the interests of the reactionary elite, end of quote. Evo Morales' house was ransacked, indigenous symbols have been set ablaze, and racist and dehumanizing language on social media is pervasive. (sighs) It is ugly. It's too bad it's gotten lost. Uh, Many American liberals and moderates, like me, Bernie Sanders and uh, AOC, as well as uh, Jimmy Carter, liked Morales. Why? I suspect the forces that ousted him are a big reason he was so popular. Nicole, again, thanks for being with us. The worry about such a coup is not new, but please tell us about the forces who have so long opposed Morales. This just didn't come out of nowhere. 
No, thanks so much, Bert. It's a pleasure to be on the show today, and I'm happy to try to relay this complex scenario to a much broader U.S. audience. Um, So there has been a very active um, right wing in the lowland region. This is eastern Bolivia. It's often described as a sort of... uh, part of like the Amazon, right? On a map geographically, it actually looks like a half moon crescent. So it's um, been referenced as the Media Luna. Santa Cruz, Benny, Tarija, all are part of this broader sort of um, coalition, um, which really claims around autonomy has been around even um, at the very beginning. In 2007, I spent the year in Bolivia when Morales first was elected. And this was a historic moment for Bolivia, the first indigenous president uh, to be elected. He uh, was of Quechua and Aymara, uh, two very large indigenous group descents. He was a coca grower, an organizer. Um, So this was really a moment that had galvanized international attention. And at first, you know, coming out of the coca growers, Moss represented the movement towards socialism, a real radical shift from the oligarchy, which has ruled Bolivia for a very long time. And I mean, in order to go back to sort of the formation of some of these groups, we would have to look at the historical context of the 20th century. Um, the United States in a Cold War era climate invested lots of resources towards Santa Cruz to develop an agribusiness elite. So essentially, U.S. interests have been in this region for a very long time. Um, and out of these agribusiness elites, there was a coalition that was formed called the Comité Santa Cruz, which is like an, an elect commerce, chamber of commerce of sorts. Um, And so for a long time, there have been discourses of regionalism and ethnic differences in this lowland area, right? That they are whiter, they are more European, less indigenous, tied to questions of natural resources, obviously. Um, So in the mid-20th century, as I would say these investments were expanding agriculture, large-scale agriculture, we suddenly saw a shift from an economy dependent upon mining and resources coming from the Andean or Western half to suddenly by 1980s, 90s, 2000s, Santa Cruz had become the hub of economic development for the entire country. So I would say claims for autonomy really stem from this interesting history of expanding the frontier, right, um, but also the intensive agro-industrial development that occurred. Um, and, uh, you know, when we think about Morales running in 2007 and being elected, the first thing he said is, I will radically redistribute all uneven landholding patterns in the East. Now, in eastern Bolivia, 90% of the land is held by 1% of the population. Yeah. So you could imagine how this 1% was outraged and nervous. I remember traveling on public buses where when Morales came to power, people were saying, we will become a little Cuba. Send your money you know, to Argentina, to Chile, because he's going to usurp and take control of our houses, our automobiles. Like This will be... Um, communism, right, is what folks in the region were concerned about. And their identity very much stems from a kind of neoliberal economic model of business interests and the private sector. So Morales represented a grave threat, and they began organizing, calling for autonomy. 
And their vision of autonomy was essentially liberation, right? They were calling for a split from western half of Bolivia, which would be the Andean region of Bolivia. They were holding enormous cabildos, which are these sort of popular gatherings of people where they were utilizing regional and racial um, discourses uh-huh. to mobilize. I mean, I participated in many of these cabildos to understand how they were organizing. Mm-hmm. And most folks uh, were really joining because of these deep systemic differences that they saw this region, right, racially, ethno-territorially, as very different than the Andean region. So they were magnificent orchestrators yeah. of a both discourse, but a political movement that galvanized the middle class and working class people from Santa Cruz. So there's been just a very few elite and a lot of people who are not elite and don't have a lot of money. Boy, that, no. sound, that sounds so familiar. About what Absolutely. percentage of the population is indigenous? My impression is a lot. How, how did they fare economically prior to Morales and, and how since? And mm-hmm. Well, let's go with that one for now. Sure. So, like, probably about 20% of Bolivia's population self-identifies as indigenous. There are 36 recognized nations or ethnic groups. The idea that Morales proposed of a plurinational state was really incorporating these distinct ethnic identities into a unified state, right? So he proposed to rewrite the Constitution using some of the historic values of distinct indigenous nations. He also proposed to gather a constituent assembly, which would be made up of a conglomeration of ethnic groups, but also labor movements, so, you know, and other social movements. Um, and so I think that, you know, there were symbolic gains that were huge for indigenous peoples, right? To see a reflection of themselves sure. in the president was tremendous. But then to begin to think, rethink um, and rewrite a constitution that was steeped to these European ideals of conquest also represented um, structural changes, right, in terms of the nation state. So I think under Morales, we have certainly seen uh, a redistributive agenda, which has been um, built upon an extractive industry. So predominantly natural gas, right, Um, and, you know, nationalizing the gas industry, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later, but some part of those revenues were redistributed back into social programs, which benefited indigenous peoples. You know, some of the the indigenous nations in the West have probably, Bolivia as a country is the second poorest uh, nation state in the Western Hemisphere, second to Haiti, and it's indigenous peoples by and large that live in some of the most impoverished areas, right? And that's both rural and urban, because there's been a ton of indigenous migration to urban areas, and whole cities like El Alto, which are indigenous cities that were self-constructed, right, Mm. where people from rural areas literally built a city on the periphery of La Paz. So we see this urbanization of indigenous folks working in informal sector, working in all sorts of areas, right, construction. And under Morales, you know, to a certain extent, no one can argue with the fact that the economy was much better than it had been under uh, neoliberal regimes. And we have seen an increase in terms of quality of life for indigenous people. But but for the the owners, uh, it probably perhaps they they may have taken a little bit hit. And let, let's talk about the power of the 
interest behind natural gas. I guess there's a fair amount. I mean, a lot of natural gas and and mining interests as well. What about the traditional power of the ownership of you know the uh, the extractive uh, interests? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the large economic sectors. Um, our natural gas, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but also soy production and agro-industry in the East. Um, And then, obviously, there's a large conversation around the question of lithium Uh tied to a very complicated industrial process that Morales had begun of extracting from the salt flats, right? And that's in the western half of the country. And I know we'll get to lithium a little later. However, when it comes to natural gas, Bolivian gas exports, are they comprise the largest share of foreign trade. They rose um, in terms of like, you know, 2006 renegotiations uh, that Morales, you know, um, was overseeing, was generally referred to as a nationalization by Morales, right? Mm-hmm. So this allowed Bolivia to take, as I mentioned, a percentage of the royalties from some of those private gas companies and yielded an initial boom, right, in the national treasury. So what we saw were royalties amounting to about $5.5 billion U.S. dollars in 2014, but fell a little bit in 2015. So the gas is exported to Brazil, and smaller shalers go to Argentina, and the rest, about 10%, is for domestic consumption. In terms of gas and the nationalization or semi-nationalization, I think the government has made great strides, right, in expanding access to gas in urban areas at pretty low prices, helping to legitimize um, the fact that most of the country's gas resources are shipped outward towards Brazil, um, so Brazil could be thought of as like a mini empire within Latin America, mm. and the connections between Brazil and Bolivia are tremendous, right? There's interest not only in natural gas, but also in soy production. Um, and I think that the right has a transnational connection as well mm-hmm. to Brazil, which I think later we'll talk about. Um, so in terms of natural gas, that has been incredibly beneficial, right? Because if we go back in history, we know that in the neoliberal era, all the gas pretty much was privatized, right? And there were these really um, covert, uh, you know, plans to export natural gas, which would travel through to Chile and eventually wind up in the hands of the United States. And the gas wars in La Paz, which ousted the neoliberal president, Goni Sanchez de Lozada, was principally about our gas resources, right? And so the calls that came out of the gas wars were a no to privatization and a yes towards like maintaining our natural resources and nationalizing, right? So Hmm. Morales was kind of catapulted out of this large uh, social movement to uh, nationalize gas. All right. What about lithium? I'm not sure what that's for, but I think the demand for lithium has... uh, grown quite a bit, yes? Sure. So lithium, as we all know, is sort of used to make batteries that power much of our 21st century consumer practices, right? We could think through the ways in which our connection to our iPhones and our Apple computers are tied to lithium batteries, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. this is an enormous... what treasure, right, that Bolivia has in abundance. But Bolivia is not the only nation state. It's important to note 
that. There are lots of other Andean nations with a lithium deposit, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. Um, so I think there's a question that even now as we're entering into the age of electrification and electric vehicles, the push for like a Green New Deal uh-huh. and thinking through like alternatives is going to place enormous pressure, right, on global South nations that have lithium deposits, right? So it's expected to boom because of the uh, transition towards renewables. So Evo's government did pass a law, which basically was a law to establish a contract with a German company to mine the lithium for 70 years. The region where lithium is found is in Potosi. This is the western half. This is the one area, I think, in the west where people definitely see this as a new mining enterprise, right? It's important to note that there's lots of people doing work on lithium in Bolivia. Um, Jim Schultz and Rebecca Hollander have written a lot about it in terms of the ways in which this industrial scale uh, lithium extraction will have remarkable consequences for indigenous and local communities, right? There's all kinds of questions of the chemicals that will be used, Ooh. how that will affect lands and soils to agrarian production in rural areas. Um, there's all sorts of questions also of historic forms of dispossession of indigenous peoples tied to large-scale mining. Um, so this is a complicated sort of issue, right? But I do think that in international pressures around renewable um, energy are certainly fueling some of this. Uh, Interesting. Uh, We're learning about uh, Bolivia here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Nicole Fabricant. Uh, We're talking about uh, Bolivia and the recent coup against its very popular leader, Evo Morales. Now, certainly, oftentimes in Latin America and other so-called developing countries, the military plays a key role, a key political role. In Venezuela, for example, the military remains loyal to the elected president, Maduro, despite intense pressure from the United States. Maduro is still in charge. And so what about in in Bolivia? Did the military play a significant role in ousting Morales? And if so, why? So this is an ongoing question and debate um, around the exact moment at which the military kind of gave, you know, surrendered and um, supported this coup. Um, It's a little unclear in terms of the details, but of course the military played a tremendous role in this coup. Um, We know that whenever Morales was asked to resign, it came from the military, right? So he was literally being forced out of his position by the military. What's really unclear is how much the United States played a direct role Uh in this, right? And I say that quite honestly. For many of us in the United States, there's ongoing conversations about soft coup versus hard coups, like how and in what ways the United States has funneled money into organizations, right, development efforts, even environmental organizations that has supported the opposition, right? However, there is a very strong right, and it's homegrown in terms of Latin American alliances, and they are highly capable of uh, concocting this military coup in and of themselves. Um, So I think that we know for sure there are connections to Bolsonaro's Brazil, 
We know that Camacho, who was leading Luis Fernando Camacho, was the head of the civic committee who traveled to La Paz to offer this resignation letter, right, to Morales. And he's been this, like, national and international figure representing the right. We also know that he has tweeted out pictures where he's hugging all sorts of um, agrarian elites that have been ousted from uh, Bolivia and live currently in Brazil and represent Uh. this kind of transnational right. Um, Mm. So we don't necessarily have to have the evidence that the United States was directly involved to call this a coup. I think that the military seizing power, the fact that Evo Morales is exiled in Mexico, the fact that there's ongoing repression, right? We have friends who are journalists that are terrified for their lives in Bolivia right now um, because they are uh, going door to door this military regime and police officials working alongside this um, illegitimate government um, and rounding people up and imprisoning them. So, you know, I think it's pretty clear that um, the military is siding with Agnes and her regime and the right. And, you know, I think that there's probably been offers um, around monetary compensation. I'm not sure what the exact shift from supporting Morales to Agnes has been. However, this illegitimate government is utilizing the arm of the state to wreak havoc and violence. And the images we saw of 15 coca growers who were murdered as they were protesting this illegitimate government is absolutely human rights violations. And the international community should be quite concerned about what this means for not just Bolivia, but for other nation states. Well, Bolsonaro is not a good guy. That's for sure. And of course, Trump loves Bolsonaro. He likes that kind of thing. And and I do wonder if if perhaps, uh, well, I, I will say that in trying to find a spokesperson to talk about Bolivia, Nakla had uh, pointed to someone in Bolivia, but this person was frightened and of didn't course. want to do it, didn't want to do it. Right. And that, to me, says a lot about what's lot. going on there. But, Absolutely. Uh, so, Absolutely. But there is, well, what about this perhaps over-romanticization that, that you know, could be charged that, oh, you know, I mean, Maduro in... Uh, in uh, uh, um, Venezuela. Venezuela is, you know, he's not a, uh, you know, a, a, a terrific guy, apparently, so we've been told. And, you know, has the left been over-romanticizing Evo Morales? I mean, he's he's pretty, mag- you know, he's got a great, uh, uh, you know, look to him with this, uh, you know, right. very handsome man and wearing nice clothes that are, that have little bits of indigenous colors on them, which I loved. Right. Well, what about that over-romanticization uh, yeah, worry? Yeah, absolutely. So, look, from the beginning, you know, as a critical observer of this process since 2007, we, and I say we because lots of us in the United States who have connections to Bolivia have been writing quite critically of Morales, right? There are disjuncts between his discourses and the actual practices, right, which um, are pretty much maintaining an extractivist model. This has wreaked lots of havoc socially, environmentally for indigenous communities. He has co-opted, and this has been an ongoing conversation, movements in Bolivia 
Bolivia and usurped a lot of the power that they once had, put them in the state or, you know, utilize them for his purpose. Uh, there's a feminist argument around the ways in which he represents a historic union, machista sort of, uh. um, you know, uh, style, right? And lots of folks in Bolivia are incredibly critical of um, this most recent election feel like he was not democratically elected and that this was fraud. And these are very vibrant conversations in Bolivia about how responsible Morales has been, that he shouldn't have run again, and that he was hanging on to power in a moment when he should have probably walked away and uh. been satisfied with the victories of his, um, you know, Moss state in the 14 years of his regime. However, he held on and you know, I think a lot of folks, even among the left, like there's no homogeneous left in Bolivia, as there's not a homogeneous indigenous group. There's been incredible conflicts between lowland indigenous peoples and Morales, where he's used the repressive arm of the state to quell uh, protesters who were resisting highway construction in the Tipnis or the Amazon region. Um, so these are vibrant, complicated right. conversations mm -hmm. about Morales, right? Mm -hmm. And I am the first person on the left in the United States to criticize Morales, while at the same time, I don't think that that a criticism or critique should soften our just anger right. and uh, horror at this illegitimate government. So we can hold both the critique up and we can hold up a sense that what's happening is an absolute, absolute violation of people's human rights. And this is a repressive regime. This is an illegitimate regime. And we can also say, at the same time, uh, support our Bolivian colleagues and say that, yes, you know, to a certain extent, um, Morales is sacrificing, right, his own people at the very end here mm. by holding on to power. He did not develop leadership to have a next oh. generation that would take over the MAS as a political party, oh. right? And so I think that's a huge, huge, huge issue. And many people are even saying that the massacre in Sacaba Cochabamba is a fault of this this regime. Like these are the most vulnerable populations, the coca growers that went out to support Morales, and then they're at the hands now of military and paramilitary forces. Mm. Not a very pretty picture. Well, who is this no. new self-titled president? Is she openly on the side of the wealthy white population? Mm -hmm. Has she been openly racist and anti-indigenous? Mm -hmm. Tell us about her. Sure. So there's lots of questions about who Janine Anguiz really is. She's a 52-year-old lawyer from the northeastern region of Bolivia, the Beni region, which borders Brazil. She's a well-known Christian fundamentalist. She's been an opposition leader of MAS. Um, we know that. And actually, there's ongoing conversations about tweets that she has since deleted, right, as she usurped power. Now, it's really important to realize that the right completely utilized the claims of fraud. And as I said, it's a very heterogeneous opposition, not just the elite and right wing are uh -huh. opposing Morales, some of his very same people. And they saw this void, this power vacuum as an opportunity to seize control of the state. 
So she swoops in, right, in a moment that is absolutely like Morales resigns, he flees, his vice president resigns, uh, Garcia Linera flees, and there's this question of who's to, uh, you know, obtain the space of this absent or interim, right, government. And so we know that she has put out tweets that were explicitly racist against Andean peoples. She was on social media, um, as many people from this region, you know, claiming certain kinds of culture of poverty tropes about indigenous peoples, you know, putting it out there publicly. But as soon as, as the vice president of the Senate, she assumed the presidency, she deleted every one of those tweets, right? But mm. folks have a historical record and memory of the kinds of things she's saying. Shortly after she declared herself president, she thrust a massive Bible and proclaimed the Bible has returned to the palace. Okay. So these are these Christian references undermining the fact that Morales has had the rich indigenous symbolism, right, of the Wipala flag, which represents indigenous unity. He's had all sorts of um, Pachamama, right, Mother Earth references within uh-huh. the space uh-huh. or the seat of power. And so now she brings the Bible in. Um, and Agnes also has close ties to Camacho, the far-right Santa Cruz businessman, who also said publicly, Pachamama Mother Earth will never return to the palace, oh, right? My. So all of these are incredibly uh, anti-Indigenous. This is part of the historic racism and the opposition to Andean Bolivians and Indigenous peoples, more broadly speaking, in what is still a very colonial and uh-huh. uh, European, right, oh, dominant East. Oh, my goodness. Well, I know you have to go and teach a class. Thank you for being with us. And if people want to learn more about uh, Bolivia, uh, the NACLA website, do you happen to know what that is? I I, I assume that's the best one. So if they're interested, NACLA is a great source of information. It's NACLA.org. has a long history of doing really sophisticated yes. investigative journalism from both Latin America, but also U.S. scholars and journalists critically reflecting upon uh, U.S. interventionism in Latin America. Well, thank you so much. Very informative. Thank you, Bert. Wonderful you. conversation. Much thank appreciated. You. Ooh, Bolivian music here. Bolivian hip-hop. Marca, no queremos nada con el TLC ni el ALCA Hay que cambiar el modelo neoliberal Que causa desempleo, convulsión social El capitalismo que se cayó en el abismo Porque solo quiere obtener más ganancias Saqueando las riquezas de los suelos Con su régimen de violencia Nos pide paciencia Bayonetas del Estado, Presidente y General Por los países imperialistas se hace manejar Recibiendo órdenes de masacre, jerarquía de maleantes Y que el carajo de aquellos traidores que han jurado cambiar Han seguido con el gran mercado Todo lo que encuentran a su paso lo van privatizando Hasta el tiempo de las personas en mercancía lo están transformando President Nixon was on the TV above the bar and everyone was transfixed. This was well into the Watergate crisis. Again and again, the guests were yelling, lies, that's a lie, he's lying. And there was palpable outrage and just people couldn't believe it. 
this is the president of the United States. His role and position of respect had been universally unquestioned. The dissonance with our nationwide foundation of total expectation that a president would never blatantly lie to the American people was was shattered. It was painful. He had to go, no question, because he lied. Even Republicans agreed this was simply beyond acceptable. The legitimacy of the role of the commander-in-chief over the entire federal government was based on a shared understanding of the truth being important, essential. Back then, we were glad there was an aggressive news media. We all understood it. Their vital job was to ferret out the truth and report that truth to us, to we, the people. Truth was not molten. The truth was the truth. Provable reality, demonstrable facts. Without question, the truth was of paramount interest. The liar-in-chief had to be removed because he lied, because he lied to us. Yet here we are with the president about whom it is understood that he lies and lies every day, virtually every time he opens his mouth, and he remains in office. If I had to guess the ratio of Trump's lies to those of Nixon's, probably a thousand to one, and it's accepted as, well, that's just Trump being Trump, again and again, every single day. Well, our guest on this portion of Keeping Democracy Alive, Terry Canfield, has an article on Slate called Why Trump's Supporters Will Believe Any Lie He Tells, from Kavanaugh to Khashoggi. They are immune to the truth. Immune to the truth. Have we really come to a place in American history where the truth just no longer matters? And America has always prided itself on being a nation of laws and not men. Like the law of gravity, our laws apply equally to all. They may not be just tossed out like so much trash. Yet our guest Terry Canfield writes, Trump is open about his disdain for law. In April, he told an audience in Michigan that our laws are so corrupt and stupid. End of quote from Trump. Of course, in an authoritarian government, the dictator is the law. Most of us have assumed we don't have that here. But do we now? Is that what so many Trump supporters want? Terry Canfield has written books, short stories, essays, and articles for both adults and children. She earned her undergrad degree at the University of Pennsylvania and her law degree from University of California, Berkeley School of Law. In an essay entitled The Best Interest of the Child, Terry talked about her legal practice as a defense appellate lawyer. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Terry. And this article seems a bit far afield from your normal topic. How did you come to write this? Well, first, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to talk to you. Um, as you mentioned, by profession, I'm an appellate lawyer, so I, appellate defense lawyer. So I naturally think about legal defenses. And as I was watching the Mueller probe unfold, I could see that Trump and his lawyers were not devising any sort of legal, traditional legal defense. In fact, while the probe was going on, as you pointed out, Trump continued to lie change his story, and actually obstruct the probe. Recall that obstructing the probe itself is against the law. Yes. It's called obstruction of justice. Indeed. Well, you can't devise a traditional legal defense while you're breaking the law. So I was also watching as many of the legal commentators were just simply outraged. He's doing it again. He's obstructing justice again. It occurred to me that he had no intention of devising a traditional legal defense. 
it occurred to me that his defense would actually be to torpedo the rule of law and factuality itself. And um, that's how he would sort of escape um, culpability for his behavior. Um, but there's, of course, something bigger going on. Um, so just real quick, what do I mean by torpedoing rule of law and factuality? Well, basically, it's a standard fascist technique. Um, you can read about it in, say, mm. Professor Timothy Snyder's book, Road to Unfreedom, or Professor Jason Stanley's book, How, Fascist, How, Fasc How Fascism Happens, is his title. And it's a very standard technique that the strong man gains power by undermining truth, undermining rule of law, and that that's actually what he's doing. He's not concerned with any sort of traditional legal strategy. He doesn't intend to go to court. He intends, I guess, to put it bluntly, to sort of blow up the court before anybody can get him there. Yeah. And and so this this article titled you know why uh, Trump's supporters believe any lie he tells, uh, it, it's it's amazing. Is it that they want him to be a dictator? I mean, it seems like people say, well, you're not accepting the results of the election. Okay, does that mean he's a dictator now? You know, we've had elections pretty often, and there's always a an opposition to it. It's like they just want to have no opposition to it. They, they de delegitimize it, which it sounds like is, is what you're saying, undermining uh, the rule of law and, and the normal rules. And well, go, go ahead. ahead. So no, you you're, asking, do, you're asking, do his supporters want a dictator? Yeah. This isn't what they're thinking. Um, what they're thinking, and I, I, you know, I can't really speak for all of his supporters, but what <laughs> the experts in fascism and sort of group leadership and the kind of dynamics we're seeing um, what they think is that the United States government right now is not a legitimate government. Huh. And they don't believe the federal government is legitimate. And um, they are happy to see what they think Trump is doing is dismantling the federal government. Um, and that is what he's doing. While he's yeah. distracting everybody with all of his antics, he's taking the federal government apart. Um, and why do they think he's illegitimate? Well, um, all of this, this didn't come out of the blue, right? I mean, we, we've been seeing, you know, rumbles of this coming for a few decades and sort of on the far-right fringes. So um, what's basically happened is the far-right fringe has taken over the Republican Party. Yeah. And as far as dismantling the federal government, um, basically the idea is to take us back to 1920. So the 1920s. And Make America Great Again cycles us back to a mythical period when things were wonderful. Yeah. But what, what were the 1920s about? Well, that was before the Civil Rights Movement. That was before the women's movement. That was before FDR and the New Deal. Um, there was no minimum wage and there was no federal income tax. So we lived in a period when, um, white, when power was concentrated in the hands of a few white men. And that's basically what the 1920s was about. And um, that's what they want to go back to. Uh -huh. And so it's not that they want a dictator. What they want is they, they cheer his lies because his lies are undermining the federal government, undermining the system, riling up the liberals. Oh. And so they want, to, they want to take us back to, I would, I would pinpoint where they want to go back about 1920, get rid of federal income tax, get rid of the minimum wage, get rid of Social Security. Um, we take these things for granted and we think, well, this is America. But it's really only America of the last hundred years. 
Well, interesting. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with Terry Canfield about an article on Slate called uh, Why Trump's Supporters Will Believe Any Lie He Tells from Kavanaugh to Khashoggi, They're Immune to the Truth. You raise an interesting point there about the real goal, why lies just serve that goal. And everyone can agree, even Trump supporters can agree that Trump exhibits a remarkably childish impulsiveness. His stories often change many times within a remarkably short period. He reads nothing and just goes with gut feelings. Truth and facts are routinely discarded. As you point out in Robert O. Paxton's book, The Anatomy of Fascism, he defines a cult of leadership as one in which the followers believe the leader's instincts are better than the logic used by elites. Elites is an interesting word, I think, and ap- uh, applicable here. As is the case now, it's a major diversions uh, from really all of American history. Do you have reason to believe that his followers are willing, perhaps eager, to toss aside laws and logic and replace it with the leader's mere instincts? What What do you make of this willingness of, of people to accept that? You've talked about that a little bit. Perhaps you can say more. Well, actually, the two parts of couple parts of what you said. Um, this idea that he's childish and buffoonish, um, I think, is a, is a misconception. Um, and it's a misreading of Trump, and it's a dangerous one. It underestimates him. Um, so, for, for example, um, he, I think that that's a, part of the game, is that he co- likes to come across as he's just winging it. Um, and people on the left underestimate him and think he's childish. He's not. There's nothing childish about um, the methodical way that he is really moving us toward a fascist regime change. C- consider the fact that he could succeed. I don't think he will, but he could succeed. He could succeed in actually bringing us into a regime change. If you think about how remarkable that is, that three years ago, if you would have thought that we could be on the verge of a, of a literal fascist takeover, it's, it's incredible. And so I think people aren't giving him enough credit. Um, I think one reason we tend not to give him enough credit is because the devices that he's using, the tactics that he's using, are really not all that hard. Um, they're time-honored, they're proven, um, they're documented, they're, um, and he's being coached by people like Steve Bannon who understand um, the tactics very well. They're not that hard. He isn't childish. Um, there's not, again, there's nothing childish about this, um, this policy of removing children from families at the border. It's methodical. It's cruel. It's, um, it's something else. So that was the first part. The second part, you, you said, are his followers willing to, um, willing to follow him, his gut? Yes, yeah, his that's gut. what they want. Yeah. That, that's definitely what they want. They, when, when Trump tells a lie, actually, uh, his press secretary, oh, yeah. Sanders, mm-hmm. um, ex- explained it. She said the lie gets to an important truth. Ah. So the way that the way that his followers hear the lies, like for example, take birtherism. For example, birtherism is a lie; is a provable lie, but it gets to a deeper truth. And the deeper truth is that we want we don't like having a black president. This is, this is when when a when a ethnic majority in our country, say the white white men, had a had a majority. Ethnic majorities never give up their power when no. they struggle. No, that's for sure. Well, so, anyway, that they they do follow him, and they do they do in the lie they hear a deeper truth. Interesting. In the lie, they hear the deeper truth. I I can see that. I've seen that from his some of his supporters. You you cite another essay in which the authors declare that authoritarianism 
is not a momentary madness, but an internal dynamic within liberal democracies. I It does seem like this embrace of racist new fascism has long been with us, just hidden below the surface. And the difference is now it's out in the open. You know, I I was at first surprised by the uh, racism that, that showed up with Trump after Obama. Uh, somehow I was naive enough to think, well, we had a black president. That's a blow against racism. Boy, was I wrong. So it's been below the surface for a long time. Do we just keep it below the surface? Maybe this is a good thing that it's coming out, you know, out of the sewers? No, actually, that's not, the, the essay actually makes a different kind of point. Um, I would say that fascism has not been below the surface for much of our history. So the last 50 years, um, it's gone underground, but that's only the last 50 years. We have a deep tradition in this country of authoritarianism. Look at, look at slavery, for example, um, or even an era when wife beating was legal. So the idea that this is coming out of nowhere or that it's been underground really isn't true. Um, what happened in the civil rights movement after the civil rights movement is that we, we did force it underground, um, but it was always out in the open. And um, we forced it underground so that the, that's, why they, that's why the far right rebels against what they call political correctness. Right. Uh, but slavery was authoritarian um, and, yeah. you know, very, very similar. Um, but the, the point in that article is a little different. The point in that article says that um, we have a certain type of person, and the psychologists have identified what they call an authoritarian personality. And um, I could talk about that, but they've identified a certain personality that is inclined toward authoritarianism. And um, this personality is very afraid of diversity. They're actually afraid of people who are different. It, it in, inspires fears in them. And so liberal democracy naturally, ex, liberal democracy will continually expand. As democracy expands, the society becomes more liberal naturally. So, for example, liberal values would say everybody has a right to vote. So the more people who have a right to vote, the more diversity expands. Right. When diversity expands, it creates a reaction. So you have a constant cycle. So as, as diversity, as the society becomes more diverse, then the authoritarians will have a reaction against that. And then they beat it back. And then it's less diverse. And then as it becomes more diverse, once it, once it becomes more diverse, there's another reaction. So this, the conclusion of this article is that basically Trump happened because liberal democracy exceeded the capacity, exceeded many people's capacity to tolerate it. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Wow. Uh, I do learn things. Yeah, it's kind of a lot, right? I'm throwing so much out here. It's like, no, it's good. I I like doing this show because I learned so much. Uh, You write that in a totalitarian regime, state controlled media normalizes the leaders constantly changing stories which serves to further obliterate any notion of a shared truth. Our system of justice has as its foundation a shared understanding that truth is truths and truth is truth and facts very much matter. Of course, we remember when Rudy Giuliani announced that truth isn't truth. Laws mean that when a jury finds that laws have been violated, the perpetrators will face justice. The Trump method to the Seeming madness is to dismember the notion of truth altogether. 
what happens without a shared truth? Uh, it's hard to imagine. Well, we actually are, we're almost there before Trump took office. So people, Obama made a, a comment once. He said that Fox viewers and NPR listeners live on different planets. So if you listen to Fox, you have an entirely different view of the world. You have an entirely different set of facts. You have an entirely different reality than, say, if you listen to NPR. So we already had a shattered public sphere. So the thing about public sphere is that without it, you can't have democracy because you have to agree on a set of facts and then you can interpret them differently. So you say, okay, here's what's happening with the economy. And then people have disagreements about how to respond to the economy, but they agree with the basic facts. The economy is this. What is happening right now is that people aren't even agreeing on the basic facts. So Trump will say, oh, the economy is great, even though something shows that it isn't. You see, so we, have, we already had a, a fractured public sphere, and what Trump is doing is torpedoing it completely so that... When two, when half of America lives in one reality and half of America lives in the other reality, you, you cannot have rule of law. So uh, I'll give you an example of how Trump can undermine rule of law once he has shattered the, the public sphere so that half of the people or a third of the people or 40 percent of the people live under a different set of, a different set of facts. So one of the things that Trump has persuaded his followers of is that the Democrats are the enemy. So let's say a, a decision, a court, a jury verdict comes out or a court decision comes down. All Trump has to say is that, well, there were Democrats on the jury, so it's yeah. not valid. Interesting. And, 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 he, and, and well, just, just to say he can, he can do that with the uh, people he pardons. <laughs> and he's, He can do that with Mueller. He can do that with Mueller. So if if people believe that Democrats are the enemy, yeah. well, then he gets to define he gets to define Democrats any way he wants. So, he, so you can be a registered Republican, but if you don't do the way he wants you to do, then he can call you a Democrat. So, and, and court court decisions aren't self enforcing. Good so point. We, the reason the Supreme Court has power is we all defer the power to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has no police power. Right. So, if the if Trump has now persuaded his people that Democrats are the enemy, so he doesn't have to worry about a jury verdict because statistically you're going to have a certain number of Democrats on the jury. Hmm. So Did he doesn't you... have to worry. So instead of, instead of go to where I started, instead of devising a traditional legal defense, he's going to undermine any jury verdict. As as illegal, illegitimate. Right. Yeah, he's already been doing that with the with the Mueller investigation, just trying to mm -hmm. delegitimize them. Fascinating. And with with the murder of Washington Post reporter Khashoggi, Trump is despairing at what a clumsy cover up it was by the Saudis. He's clearly upset that his job of selling the Saudi lie is made more difficult. Not that they should not have murdered the guy. He tried at first to accept the lie as fact, so that. As you say, the lie would become the fact. And yet he still seems mm. to be slithering out of it. I guess facts, as Reagan said, are inconvenient things. Facts and truth, at least Reagan got that, facts and truth affect most people, but apparently not Trump. I wonder, is it the case, do you think, that once his followers buy into the habit of instantly accepting anything he says, that that becomes 
a kind of normal. And what about that? Right, that's exactly right. That he, um, that they, they don't accept the existence of facts or whatever he says is fact, and they are willing to do this. And and Trump, you know, Trump um, naturally inhabits a world of fiction. So Trump, you know, as as um, scholar Timothy Snyder points out, Trump was never a successful businessman. Right, right. He was propped up by Russian money, and also now. Now, new reporting shows that right. he cheated for years on his on his taxes, how he got Millions, rich. Yes. But he presented himself as a successful businessman. So he's very, and then he played one on television. And so he's very, very good at inhabiting and creating a world of fiction. Yeah. He knows how to do it. It's a very nice fiction. People like that kind of fiction. They like uh, tough, strong leaders. And uh, so it, it seems to be uh, happening. How did it's fascinating to me how this uh, sort of dictator goes out and has all these rallies of his own people, you know, and and it's it's very different. How does the chant of "lock her up" fit in? I mean, it's still being said. How does that fit in and serve the Trump playbook with regard to truth and lies? Well, it does. That does a a, a few things. One of the things it does is. Um, there's something called whataboutism, which is also... Oh, yeah, um, I've seen a lot of it. Yeah, sort of a standard, again, another standard technique. So if the idea is, if you if you accept that Hillary Clinton committed crimes or that Obama committed crimes, which they actually do believe, yeah. if you believe that um, Hillary Clinton colluded with the Russians, which is ridiculous, but they believe, yeah. then going after Trump for those same things becomes a political persecution. Everybody uh-huh, does it. Uh-huh. All politicians lie. Uh-huh. All politicians are dishonest. Right. Um, and as soon as you buy into that, by the way, you're doing Putin's work for him. For him, Because what Putin is trying to do is undermine, and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. And so this, and, and there are even some people on the left who, who pick this up and they shouldn't um, because it's doing Putin's work. So the idea that all politicians are liars, all politicians are corrupt, means that Trump isn't doing anything anyone else does. And then you, and if you accept that, then the nation dissolves into um, tribalism. So if the enemy leader is a liar, and if our leader is a liar, then we prefer our liar to someone else's liar. <laughs> it's funny, but it's, so, I know, it's, it's scary as heck. It's now, scary. It's scary attack. It's terrifying. Yeah, it really is. And for, for those of us who believe in democracy, yeah, we got our work cut out for us. It is a common trait for dictators to rely on fear-mongering. It works remarkably well in motivating people as he wants, as the dictator wants. Fear-mongering, of course, is defined as the spreading of frightening and exaggerated rumors, verifiable lies, of an impending danger or the habit or tactic of purposely and needlessly arousing public fear about an issue. Well, we can see this at work in the words Trump uses to characterize the caravan of refugees. The lies are so blatant. I mean, he made up something about riots in California. Just completely blatant. Most people I know are incensed. How close to the tipping point where most Democrats and Republicans are fed up with the lies and are interested in saving democracy? I'm not sure that we're that close to that as yet. What do you think? Well, okay, so we'll talk numbers. There are always going to be 30 to 35% of the population who are going to fall behind that. 
always. And that number, that number comes from the psychologists. I, I mentioned these studies into the authoritarian personality. And the numbers really um, are consistent across different cultures. So, for example, Hitler came to power with 33% of the vote. And psychologists have determined that a third of the population, about 33% of the population, is inclined toward authoritarianism. So you're never going to win, win over those 35 or 40%. And there, there's another 40 or 50% who, are, who, revile, who, who find it horrifying. And those are, that's not going to change. You're fighting for these people in the middle who are sort of swayable, who can be convinced. Um, so the danger, it, it's not that, it, 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 the danger is that authoritarians, that 33%, 35% that I'm talking about, they're very dangerous, and they always exert more power than their numbers because of the nature of authoritarianism. So the way to save things right now is for the 60% who are opposed to this have to come out in big enough numbers. Right now, they just have to be outvoted. And I say right now because right now our elections still have meaning. Um, it, it's a chilling thought, but when the Russians voted in their last meaningful election, they didn't know it. You don't know when you're voting in your last meaningful election, and right now they still have meaning. And so the quickest and easiest way to stop this, you're never going to convince those 35%. They're always going to be there. So the You qu- have to get enough other people right now while voting matters. You have to get enough people to vote. And how could people do that? I know, I mean, fighting the 33% is, is sometimes fun, but it's frustrating because they ain't going to change. And then there's That's people right. on our side. What what do you think the best approach is to reaching that what ten fifteen twenty percent that is persuadable? That's that's not an easy thing to do. Well, right, that should be everybody's task in the next week. Yeah, um, we'll talk to people, make sure people are, are registered, volunteer to drive people to the polls. Um, yeah, voting. You, when you knock on doors, you never try to persuade a diehard Trump supporter. Right. You just don't. You just you, walk away. you go to the next door. Yeah. Um, but it's a matter of identifying the people who. Um, who disagree and get them to the polls. That, that 35% will vote right now. Yeah. And they're, they're, they're hyped up. And we have this one election coming up real soon, but there are other elections going on, and there's organizing for the long term. Politics has to be a long term uh, uh, scene, recognize that it's, it, it takes a while. You, you don't have instant solutions all the time. Well, thank you so much. Very, very interesting. If people want to read more of your stuff, uh, Terry Canefield, what can you suggest? More on Slate, or is there any kind of website? Well, actually, I'm um, I'm tweeting all of this out right now. Uh-huh. So I just sort of took to Twitter in the last six months, and so almost everything that I just told you is actually in Twitter threads that I do. So uh-huh. that's where um, I'm also publishing some articles, but I'm um, I'm writing a series of books. I'm under contract with a book publisher. I'm writing a series of books. So I don't have a lot of time to do right. articles and essays. Right. Well, that so, sounds good. So I'm writing books, and then I'm tweeting. T-E-R-I-K-A-N-E-F-I-E-L-D. Terry Canfield. Thank you so much. Very, very interesting stuff. Thank you. All right. And, uh, okay, thanks. We'll see what we can do about the cascade of lies. Okay.